we are talking about the very glory of God, and we are in uh, Sole Deo Gloria. We've been going through these solas. Actually, there's one more, uh, I believe, next week that you're going to hear. Uh, but this week we're talking about Soli Deo Gloria. And I know that you've heard from the different uh, pastors going through Sola Christ, Solus Christus, as Tim has done. I think you've heard Sole Fide, Sole Scriptura. I think you might have Sole Gracia yet to go. And today we're going to be focusing on the sola that is known as the glue that to- holds all of the solas together for the glory of God alone. Now when we really unpack what this means, it will be a huge challenge to us because what it's really saying to us is that there are competing glories in the world today. There is a, a, a desire for us to have glory for ourselves. We want all the likes. We want people to follow us. We want people to esteem us. Matter of fact, I was talking to my daughter about the, the Greek, uh, Greek Roman mythology of the character Narcissus. How many of you have ever heard of Narcissus? Now, some of you are older, some of you may, uh, who are younger may not, but this character, it's uh, about this guy who is extremely good looking. I think he looked a lot like me. Um, and he had a tendency to see his, he saw his reflection in the water. And he became so enamored with how good looking, how amazing he was that he could not turn away. So much so that he began to starve and he eventually died. And he was consumed and obsessed with his own image. And in our culture today, we are so obsessed with our image, with our status, how we are esteemed, how we are respected, how we are, we are praised all the time. And we crave it. We want it all the time. But our constant craving is killing us. Our previous Surgeon General just came out this past week, and he said that Facebook has become like a heroin addiction. That even clicking the notifications is getting a euphoria such as heroin produces. We become obsessed with getting praise and being known. But yet, we are becoming more lonely than we have ever been because we are constantly seeking praise for ourselves. We have this desire, an intrinsic desire, for glory, for fame, for honor, for recognition for acknowledgement, for awareness. I mean, for someone to validate who we are. And we have this desire within us. The problem is, is that we try to seek to find it apart from God rather than find our glory and fame and honor and recognition and esteem in God Himself. And so today what we're going to see is that these, these competing glories cannot be reconciled. That we can either pursue our own glory, we can try to Christianize it all we want, we can even wrap it in religious clothing, but we know in our heart of hearts what our true motivations are. And we have to seek to abandon this pursuit of our own glory, our own fame, and find God's glory, God's fame, and make it our pursuit and our overwhelming passion. So today what my hope is, is for us to discover what glory is. To see and understand it, we're going to to just do a 33,000 foot overview or flyby. This is such an immense topic that I was just at a conference this past week in Wheaton where we spent three days just scratching the surface of this very topic for the entirety of the day. There is so much. I mean, the entire New Testament is just filled 
with the understanding of God's glory. The Old Testament is just compact, pregnant with this understanding of God's glory. And everything that he does is for the glory of his name. And so we're going to look into this, what is God's glory? And, and as, I, as I introduce this, I want to share with you a quote that really hit me hard. Just a couple of weeks ago. It's by a guy named Count von Nicholas, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He was a German in the, uh, I believe in the 16th or 17th century. He was one of the leaders of what became known as the Moravian Church. And as he, he said something that really smacked me across the head. And it's a phenomenal way. He was talking to these young missionaries, and he says, you should not seek fame for yourself. You should not seek your own honor, your own glory. Instead, what you should do is this. You should preach Christ, die, and then be forgotten. That hit me hard. Because everything I see, even within our religious sphere, is about people making their own names known. Even as they attach it to Christ. I remember talking to one religious leader about there was a, a scandal that had gone on and he was saying that he wanted to make a comment out of it publicly so it would drive people to his blog, his reading about himself. And it's like, no, 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 no. Can you be content with preaching Christ or finding your fame in, in Christ, actually in just having the esteem and the audience of one that you were living your life in front of? Are you seeking it for your glory or God's? So today, I, I'd like us to really think on this. To, to preach Christ, to die and be forgotten. In other words, I want to honor Christ. I want to find my identity so much in Christ that it doesn't matter what this world thinks of me. That I'm willing to give myself to the entirety of someone wholly other, greater than myself, and find my security, my peace, my satisfaction, all that I am in Him. So I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 11 as we, we begin just this uh, tip of the iceberg understanding of God's glory. And I'm going to just read this verse. Um, and after that, I'm going to be going through several different verses rather than just park on this one because I want to see and get, give you a greater uh, systematic understanding of God's glory throughout the world. So I'm going to ask you to stand to read God's word with me. Um, as we read, as the Holy Spirit wrote to the, through the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, he says, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me for a moment, though. Ask for God, His Holy Spirit, to be with us right now, to draw us unto Himself. So let's pray. Our glorious God, we come into your presence today, overwhelmed at the power of your name, just as we sang today, what a wonderful name it is. There is no other name given unto men by which we must be saved. Lord, yours is the greatest name that the world has ever known, the greatest name ever spoken, that you, to, belong, to you belongs all power, honor, and glory. And Lord, we humble ourselves before you right now, asking that you speak to us that you show yourself to us, not because of who we are, because we are nothing. We are living dirt. But you are the one true God, the creator God. And we come to you and we ask you to do this because of that great name, the great name of Jesus. We come to you through the name of, of, of the Savior, 
through whose blood we have redemption of sins. And through his work, we have right standing with you. So Lord, speak to us. Draw us near to yourself and, and forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our continual consuming passion to make ourselves known. But help us to make your name known. We ask you to speak to us and ask this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So we start off within this passage, for from Him, meaning it is from God, and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory. Now this word glory is the word doxa. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, the verb. It means to give uh, esteem, honor, uh, majesty, everything to it, to, to glory, or gl- bring glory to or glorify His name. And as I said before, the Bible is filled with this understanding of God's glory. And before we go any further, we have to develop a definition of what God's glory is. We have to develop a definition of God's glory. And I'm going to define it shortly, just like this. The manifest display of who God is. There are many different ways we could do it. I mean, it's so immense that to shorten it down this is, is in, in these words, really can't adequately or accurately possibly capture how great His glory is. I'm just giving you a snippet, a small definition to understand this greatness of God's glory. And because really, God's glory has two parts. There's what is known as His intrinsic or inner glory. The glory that's to who He is. It's by His nature. And His nature that He alone is perfect. He alone knows all things. He, he has all power. He has all knowledge. There is nothing that God can learn if it means that God can learn, it means that there was something that he did not know and he would have to learn. If he had to learn it, that means that he doesn't know all things. He knows all things. He has all power and he goes on forever. So that's his intrinsic glory on who he is, who is nature, that he, God is love. Think about that for a moment. God is love. Before the world ever existed, God is love. Not love is God. People get that wrong. God is love. What does it mean that God is love? See, one cannot love unless one has an object to love. When you say, I love, you don't just say, I love. You say, I love that. I love my spouse. I love my children. Or we use it for other objects. I love that dress. Or I, I love that jacket. I love that car. I love that cell phone. We use it to talk about an object. or something we have an affinity for. But before anything of that existed, God is love. What does that mean? It means God is triune. It's a mystery we don't really understand because God, before any of us existed, existed in an interdependent relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that relationship is love. It's the very core essence and then overflow which flows into us and God made the world to display and show the greatness of His love and His glory. So we have this understanding of his intrinsic glory, and then there's his, what we call his extrinsic glory. Or you might say, it's who God is, and this is a better way, this is what he does. That God created all things. He made the world and everything in it. The great rivers, the oceans, the mountains, the great sunset, the stars, God created it all. And he has created everything to show his glory. So embedded with all, in all of creation is God's glory. 
And we see that it is the manifest display of who God is. Now, I've talked a little bit about this, but I think we need to discover its manifestations. Where else does God show his glory? And I'm going to give you three, and there's a lot more than that. And I've already hinted or talked a little bit about it. We even sang about it earlier. But it's, it's first of all, manifested in all of creation. All of creation. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, 1-6, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out knowledge, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You know, I love that verse in Psalm 119 where it says that it's like the sun coming as a bridegroom from his chamber. We don't understand this in our culture today. Uh, in our, in uh, my capacity, I've got to um, meet a lot of different people in different cultures, and right now is the wedding season. I don't know if you've got to witness weddings in different cultures, but I got to be a part of a Messianic Jewish wedding uh, about 20 years ago. And my roommate was marrying a girl who came from a Jewish heritage. She believed in Yeshua as the Hamashiach, the Messiah. And so they had a Jewish wedding. And it was a fascinating wedding because in American or Western weddings, we have the, the groomsmen basically just walk in and then everybody stands for the bride, right? Everybody's focused on the bride. In Jewish weddings, it's opposite. So what happens is, is the bride walks in first, and she actually is under this chuppah, this tent. And she walks around her parents seven times, saying that her, her allegiance was to them. And then what happens, after she does that, the father of the bride will call to the rear of the sanctuary and call for his groom, the groom, the bridegroom, to come out and receive his bride. And then everybody waits to see him. Now, my job within this wedding was to blow a shofar. A ram's horn. You've seen those? They would call them trumpets in the Old Testament. And they make this huge, brilliant noise of... It's beautiful noise. Okay? That was my job. That was my only job. So you're guessing where this is going to go. So it comes time for the, the, the bride. Her name is Brandy. Walks in. She walks around her parents seven times. And then the father of the bride calls to the rear of the sanctuary and says, Andrew, you have done righteously. Come and receive your bride. Here's my moment. Got the trumpet. <laughs> the groom comes out laughing hysterically. And it felt more like he was a wrestler on, you know, like Thursday night. He's pointing at people walking down the aisle. He, but everybody was about, it was about him, the bridegroom. And it's saying here, even in the Psalms, that it's the bridegroom coming forth with this huge smile, ready to receive his bride. And the sun comes forth in all of its glory. I don't know if you've ever really examined astronomy but, or, or seen images from Hubble. I'm amazed at how God has made the heavens and the earth. I'm astonished at it. To see all of the different stars, the different galaxies, to learn that our galaxy is a small one. And all of the different billions of galaxies with all of their different stars and suns. And, and we learn that our sun is actually a small star in comparison to everything else. And God made it all. To display the glory of who he is. That embedded even with the foundation of creation. We see the gloriousness of God. Now, 
I know probably none of us in this room have been into space, but even looking around our world and seeing God's glory, His handiwork, just looking outside and seeing the different trees, seeing all of the different insects and, and all of the different creatures that are running around or, or going on vacation, as I know many of you are, to go to see the, the immense Grand Canyon or see the great Rockies or see the wonderful Pacific or go into the great northwest, or see, go into New England and see all the beautiful trees and all the arrangements. I mean, or see all the different fields within the Midwest. It's incredible to me that all of creation displays the glory of God. I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. When I look at the intricacies of how he has created the world with order, it all is embedded with his, I mean, this, this glory of who he is. So we see his glory is displayed in all of creation. And it is to be displayed and to be seen in us as creatures. His creatures. That's the next little bullet point within your notes. His creatures. We see that in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 through 7, where God says through Isaiah, I will say to the north, Give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I, whom I made, whom I formed and made. See, God made us to reflect back to him the radiance of his worth. And we see that. Think about all the talents that man has. The abilities that man has. I'm astounded at that when I think back at my own great-grandmother's lifetime, that in her lifetime she saw the first automobile and saw someone walk on the moon. Imagine going back 100 years or 200 years that one day and telling people that we would one day walk on the moon. Or I'm amazed at our ability to take, to take pictures of one another and then it will go into little pixels and it will go across cables and even in the air and then it will appear on our television sets. I'm astounded at that, especially when I think about when I was a kid. The TV was a piece of furniture. Okay? My grandparents had one of those TV that you pulled the knob, and you had to wait for it to warm up. Then you had UHF and VHF, and you had to flip it all the way around. And if you missed your show, it was gone forever. <laughs> think about that. And telephones. I, I just turned my kids on to, to Andy Griffith. Okay? Because <laughs> it's one of the few clean shows out there. But... Uh, and he's got it on the phone and he's talking into the wall. I think about when, when I was a kid and my mother knew just how long that cord was on the phone in the kitchen so she could smack me. And the kids would just get away just far enough that they knew that mom couldn't get you. Right? And God, I mean, God made man that could create these things. I was, I was laughing as I saw an article from, uh, uh, it was a, a, a science magazine from the 1940s that said, in the future, computers will be so small that they will fit an entire city block. Only a city block. And as I pull out my cell phone and I go Facebook Live over all the world. Think about that. And God made man. And he created us to display his glory, both as men and women, as co-image bearers of God. That's what I'm amazed at, how God created man and woman with all of who each one of us is, with all of our desires, with all of our aspirations, with all of these instincts that God has embedded within us. And I'm amazed at that. And God created us to display His glory. So it can be seen in His creation. His glory is manifest display of who He is. 
can be seen in his creation and his creatures, but supremely in his Christ. Christ is the apex, the greatest that heaven had to offer. The very image of God, God himself, assuming flesh that was held for a time where, where people didn't really even know him. I mean, there was nothing about them that we, he, he, we should uh, esteem him. He didn't look, he wasn't so beautiful. He wasn't, had amazing personality. He looked just like each one of us. He was an ordinary human, but he was obviously different and that he was a God-man. But it's supremely seen in his Christ as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, we get, a, we get a glimpse of His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like the flesh couldn't hold it in any longer. And it had to come out. This display of who He is. A, a, a few weeks ago, I, was, uh, I ended up catching a TV show that I never ever watched, but it was uh, Celebrity uh, Undercover. And it had Darius Rucker of Hootie and the Blowfish, or Darius Rucker, the, the country artist. And he had gone undercover, so he puts on this disguise, and he goes to see and find these different artists. And he finds uh, a few that he really likes. I believe there's three of them, possibly four. Uh, but three I'm for sure about. And he, he watches them perform, and they're amazing. And they watch him perform, and he's terrible. He plays terribly. But then he builds friendships with them, and he invites them and asks them to be, or, or they're asked to be judges critiquing him on a show. And the reality is, is he's just bringing, finding an excuse to bring them there to, to honor them. And when they do come, they think they're going to be judges again for him. They're watching him, and he gets up, and he's got the disguise on, and he plays terribly. And they all kind of cringe, like, oh, he's not going to win this, this show. And they cringe, and, and then he stops, and then he begins to play for real. Like all, and all of his talent comes out. And they're all looking at one another like, whoa, this guy's really good. We had no idea what happened to the other guy. And, in, and in, in many ways, that's what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. Is that we see him for all of his glory. can't hide it any longer. Or, or with my kids, for example, I saw the uh, Cars 3 recently. And you had Lightning McQueen. And he ends up going to uh, kind of this, I'm not going to give away any of the plot, okay? Right? I'm not going to do that. Um... But in a part of it, he's in this, uh, ends up kind of being in this crash-up derby race, and he's got mud on him, and they try to hide him in disguise because he's this world-famous race car. But water ends up spilling on him, and people see who he is. And people are like, whoa! They all change when they realize who he is. And that's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like it all washed away just for a second, and they saw him, all of his glory. And, they, and Peter's like, whoa! I want to build a tabernacle! I got Oh, we got to build one for... I mean, he's freaking out. Because he's seeing him in all of his glory. Just the radiance of who he is. And it freaked them out. It was so amazing. And it was displayed not just in Christ, in that he would humble himself and take on our flesh, but he would choose to identify with us. Think about that. He would identify with us. Now, some of us have a wrong view of ourselves. We have a higher view of ourselves than we should. So we think, why wouldn't Jesus identify with us? Let's put it this way. What if Jesus identified with ISIS? Well, now we have a problem. Because they're evil. 
They hurt people. The Bible says that all of us are evil. And yet, he would choose. Matter of fact, the Bible says that while we were still yet his enemies, his enemies, Christ came to die for us. And the glory of God was seen supremely in the cross. You know, I heard a sermon years ago by a guy named E.V. Hill. Anyone ever heard of E.V. Hill? E.V. Hill was an amazing guy, my favorite preacher of all time. And he gave a sermon at Moody Bible Institute called, When Was God at His Best? And he goes through all of creation. And he, he finishes after creation, and he goes, And that was God at His best! And everybody stops and goes, Whoa, I mean, this is amazing. He just takes you into the heavens. And he goes, No, that wasn't it. And then he goes through another thing, and, and he takes you to the incarnation, and he goes, That was God at His best! No! And then he gets to the cross. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm sitting there going, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I can't even contain it any longer. I jump up and I start applauding in the middle of his sermon. Okay? Now, people applaud at my sermons when they're over. <laughs> but his, it was like, this is amazing. And then he gets up and he goes, he talks about the glory of the cross and God reconciling man unto himself. And he would display his glory for the world to see. And that was God at his best. No. And I I sat there and I went, I want to go home. (laughs) What do you mean, no? And he says, no, God was at his best. And he says, 57 years ago. This is what he said. He said, when God got over a 12-year-old boy, when God, this boy was walking home and he had an experience where he understood Jesus as Savior and he went home to tell his mama what had happened to him. And she said, I don't know it, boy, but... I think God has saved you. See, that's what it is. God is at best when he's saving us. Right? When you experience God in all of his goodness, we can't begin to fathom the heavens, all creation. But we know what it's like to need forgiveness, to have our shame removed, to have our guilt taken from us, to give us peace, to give us purpose, to give us a passion to live by. God's displaying his glory through us. But is it really... That, is that where God's really at his best in saving us? That's where we can understand, but it's even greater than that. He wants to display it through his Christ and the greatness of who Christ is. And in seeing the greatness of who Christ is, we find ourselves in him. But how and why is this important? See, we, why do we talk about the glory of God? It's because we have a problem. And I want to spend a few moments discussing our desperate. We are in a desperate situation. We're in a desperate situation. I don't think we understand this. We have really lost an understanding of what it means uh, or to see God in all of his fullness. And in fact, we have tamed God. We have tamed God. We have created God in our image rather than seeing ourselves in the image of God. I gave a story at our campus several years ago that caused people to freak out. But it was a story of this guy who is sitting, uh, it's, it's based on a book, and this guy is sitting at a, a vegan cafe in Portland. And he's reading his Bible. And sitting across from him is Jesus wearing a white tunic with a red sash. And Jesus has headphones on. And this big, huge, burly guy walks in the door. He's got flannel on, huge beard, just big presence. He walks up to the counter and he goes, I want some fish. 
And they said, well, sorry, sir, this is a vegan cafe. He goes, me, this is Portland, you don't have fish? I said, sorry, sir. And he goes, well, I need some help. They said, well, let's serve yourself here. And he's so disappointed, but he looks over and he sees this guy reading his Bible, sitting across from Jesus. And he eyes Jesus, and Jesus eyes him. Jesus looks back at the guy, whose name is Matt, and he says to Matt, Matt, uh, you prayed that you wouldn't get that parking ticket, so I'm going to go take care of that for you. So he gets up and he walks out. And the big burly guy eyes Jesus sitting down, I mean leaving, and he sits down with this guy and he goes, so I say, I, I take it you're a Christian. He goes, well, yeah, I am. He goes, and, and that was Jesus that just went out. He goes, yep, that's him. He goes, I don't think so. He goes, a lot of good inventions in the last 2,000 years, like jeans. Why is he still wearing a white tunic with a red sash? And by this time, Jesus had come back in and sat down at a different table. And so the big guy gets up, and he, he says, uh, I don't believe that's Jesus. He goes, it's Jesus. He goes, well, let's go ask him. So he takes over, and he sits across from Jesus. He goes, you Jesus? He says, yeah. He goes, why are you still wearing a white tunic with a red sash? A lot of great inventions over the last 2,000 years. And he goes, Jesus replies, haven't you read the scripture? I, the Lord, do not change. And the big guy says, that's not what that scripture means. And then punches him in the face. Yeah, that's the same reaction I got on my campus too. And then a fight breaks out where the big guy punches Jesus. Jesus he gets Jesus in a headlock. And Jesus gets up and just punches him inside and inside and inside. And finally the, big, the, the guy, the Matt, is astonished that Jesus is getting beat up. So he picks up a chair, hits the big guy. He falls down and Jesus runs out. The big guy gets up and goes, why'd you do that? And he says, because you were beating up Jesus. He goes, that's not Jesus. And he goes, yeah, it was. He goes, no, it wasn't. He goes, how do you know? He goes, because I'm Peter. And the whole point of the book, the point of the book, and it, it's called the imaginary Jesus. And there's this, this idea that we have, he uncovers this society of Jesuses. In other words, there's these different Jesus that are there that we create in our image rather than understanding how we are made in the image of God. So you have the different Jesus they, they uncover. They have baptism Jesus, who's walking around with a baptistry everywhere he goes. They have a CEO Jesus, who's wearing a suit and tie. They have men's retreat Jesus, who's always yelling, Steak! They have these different Jesuses, but none of them are the biblical Jesus. See, we have a tendency to want Jesus to want what we want, rather than understanding who God is, and he is not tame and see him in all of his fullness, in all of his power. We cannot tame him, we cannot control him. That's how C.S. Lewis captured it in the Chronicles of Narnia when they looked at Aslan and said, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. And we have to understand our, our situation and that he is a holy God, completely holy in all of who he is, that he must punish sin by his nature. That he will call all men and women to give an account. And there will be no getting off of our situation based upon our, 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 our finding some little thing that didn't get said. Or, you know, finding a way to, to, to uh, get out of it. We're desperate according to the word of God. And unfortunately, this self-esteem gospel has gotten out that's basically just a pragmatic way of you going about your life and not beholding him in all of his fullness and his power. Yes, the Bible does talk about who he is, how we are to live. But we have to recover the image of him being holy and separate from ourselves. That he is all-powerful and we are desperate before him. And we, again, God, as he says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. 
nor my praise to carved idols. God says, I will not allow you to have a glory apart from me. It cannot exist. You can try. You can try to find it and you can find a little bit, but ultimately it will end in despair and doom. C.S. Lewis said that at the end of time, there will be two people in eternity. Those who, who God says to them, thy will be done, and those who say to God, thy will be done. What are you going, what are you pursuing? I mean, are you making yourself up greater than you are? See, we have this tendency to treat God improperly. Treat God improperly. We don't treat God the way he deserves. And it's not a wonder that he doesn't destroy us in a moment. Even in our salvation, we believe that we have added to or we decided for God. Yes, we make a choice, but the only way we can make that choice is because God sovereignly chooses and draws us to himself. Jesus said that no one could come to the Son unless the Father draws him. John 6, God wants us to understand that claiming any part of our salvation is treating him improperly. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is about. If you're unfamiliar with the verse, allow me to read it to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can boast in the sight of God or claim any work in their salvation. We have to treat God properly. Now, how else do we treat God properly? We have taken credit foolishly. We think we have all that we have because of our abilities. Let me tell you, you have no ability unless God gave it to you. I travel a little bit here and there. Going to India, going to places like Liberia, uh, Jordan. I've got to travel to different countries. When I was in India... I was struck. I, I, I went, uh, went with a ministry, uh, or got to visit a ministry there called Freedom Firm. Freedom Firm rescues minor girls from sex trafficking. India is about 1.2 billion people. 700,000 minor girls are in the sex trafficking trade. 700,000. They're either sold into it by a parent or a, a possibly a spouse has gotten them to do it. They could have been dedicated to, uh, for the sexual gratification of the Hindu priests when they're minors. When they age out, they put them into brothels. Um, these girls are mistreated, they can't read, they can't write, they have nothing. And I, I got an opportunity to go see 26 of these girls that had just been rescued. And I came face to face with evil. Not, not them, but you could see the evil that had been done to them. One girl was 10 years old. One girl was 14 and had, had serviced 24 clients that day she was rescued. One girl had battery acid poured entirely in front of her face. Another girl was deaf and never ever learned to hear and she just kept moving and having her own motions. I mean, we have to understand that this is a country with 1.2 billion people. To give you an idea of this, take LA and all of the West Coast, take New York and all the East Coast, cram them together, move it into like Ohio and Nebraska, now triple it, that's India. 600,000 people live below the poverty line. 400,000, or actually, excuse me, 600 million people live below the poverty line. 400 million people live below the bread line. There is not a public education for many of them. They have no aspirations, no way of getting out of their situation. They are trapped. And as I sat there and I looked at these girls face to face with them, my translator asked me, do you want to say anything? And I said, what could I possibly say right now? I was overwhelmed. Everything that I had was given to me in many ways. Yes, I, I achieved, but I didn't choose when I was a child to be born in the United States of America, to be the beneficiary of a public school education where I was learning to read and had freedom to go. 
I, I didn't choose any of those things. I had the opportunity to go to college, to learn, to sit, to engage, to take out, uh, you know, to get funds, to get education. They had none of that. And here, if I'm going, well, this is what I've done. Uh, no, it's because God allowed me to in His mercy, and He didn't allow me just to have that for me to have it, but to use that to help other people. That's what He's called us to do, is help reach the world and show the greatness of who God is. Do you not think that we're not going to be held to an account for everything God has entrusted to us in this world? You know, some of you know uh, Mugasha Michael from Uganda. Michael and I ended up going to India together for the very first time uh, in 2012. And I remember making a remark and I said something, I saw something off in the distance and I went, wow, that's crazy to see how they do that. And and Michael looked at me and he went, what's crazy? That's how it is where I live. And I realized at that moment in time that we're the minority in the world and that most of the world lives in situations just like that every day. And you know what makes me sick is that we're still not happy. We're still not happy. It's still not enough. What's wrong with us? We're some of the most blessed people in the history of the world because we're so self-focused. We need to give our lives for something greater, and that's to make God's known, name known throughout the world. Now, see, when we take credit foolishly, whoa, that leads to a terrifying response. It's God's terrifying response. I want to just highlight for you a, a passage from the book of Acts chapter 12. And it's Herod. Herod had, uh, it says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. I'm in verse, uh, Acts 12, if you want to follow along, or, uh, verse 20 through 23. But now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came with him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now here's the part I want you to really hear. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. God will not share his glory with another. And he will lead to a terrifying response, either immediate or delayed. It will happen. God will vindicate his glory. He will vindicate it. And we think this tendency, we can get away with sin. You know, there's a scripture verse that says very clearly, be sure your sin will find you out. God will vindicate the glory, honor of his name. It might be delayed, but it will not be denied. It will happen at the proper time. He will vindicate his glory. It will lead to a terrifying response. So we have to ask ourselves this. Knowing the glory of God is so amazing, how do we respond to this? Well, first of all, we have to recognize God for who He is. We have to recognize God for who He is, that He is God and that we are not. Recognize Him for who He is. We had a young man at our campus get beat up a couple years ago. Some of you might know this. He was uh, a man comes from a, a, a different background. He was uh, inviting people uh, to church from a different religious faith and ended up, they got angry with him and then there ended up being a fight and that the police showed up, and he barely spoke English, and the guys who initiated the fights said that he had attacked them, but he can't, he's disabled. I mean, he can't throw a punch, he can't kick, all he can do is bite. And so he bit to get this guy off of him and left imprints in the guy's arm, and so when the police showed up, they saw the imprints, so they arrested him. So I had different men from a different, uh, men from a different faith greet me after the service, and they said, brother, our, our, our friend has been arrested, what do, you, what do we do? 
So he went to go bail him out. And to make a long story short, had, we, we ended up fighting for him and went to trial, went to a bench trial. And uh, we were before the judge, and uh, the guy who was his accuser came in to testify before the judge. Okay? And as, as he was testifying before the judge, his cell phone rings. And he pulls out his phone, and he looks at the judge and goes, excuse me. And he takes the call. Now, as Americans, you're like, what? I mean, even the judge was like, am I being punked right now? <laughs> Is this for real? What's happening? Like, are you really going to treat the judge like this? And see, that's what we do to God all the time. Excuse me, God, I got something else I got to do. We busy ourselves with all other kinds of things. We don't treat God. We don't recognize him for who he is in all of his glory. Again, we tame God. So we have to recognize him for who he is. In the Old Testament, God displayed his glory quite manifestly, especially among the nation of Israel. It would be among a, a pillar of fire and a cloud. And it would, and in essence, fill uh, the different areas where they were. I mean, he would really show himself. But it would be a fire by night, a cloud by day. And that was how he'd manifest himself and the nation of Israel, when they would see it, they would respond. They would recognize him for who he is. And how do we respond to that? I mean, think of this for a moment. In, in the book of Isaiah, after Isaiah is taken in and given a picture of the throne room of heaven, and he sees the seraphim that are surrounding the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. How does Isaiah respond? Falls down. I mean, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't even begin to understand who God is. We have to recognize him for who he is. And we also need to realize all that he has done. Realize all that he has done for us. We've already talked about that, and for sake of time, I'm going to continue on here. But we need to recognize all he's done in our life, the mercy, the grace that he has showed time and time again, where he's not treated us as our sins deserve. And the third thing involves us running from sin. Running from sin. John Piper wrote that sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. It is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. He takes this from Jeremiah 2.13, where he says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, when you sin, you're exchanging God's glory for basically things that cannot hold any water. I like to look at it as dirty water. When I was in India, I got to go to one of the slums, and there was this little water, almost like a little lake, maybe a pond, and it had water buffalo in it. And it had people bathing in it, and that's where they used the bathroom, and that's where they drank from. Now, that's what sin is. You could have the pure water, cold, clear water of the Word of God, or this dirty water of this world. Now, many of us wouldn't, if we really saw what sin is and all of its hideousness, we would never, ever drink from it. I mean, even now, you think of it, you get repulsed because you know the danger of it. But yet, when we sin, we don't think it's that big a deal. We think a little sin doesn't matter. Let's think about it this way. Think about, take a little sin. Take your water, put a little rat poison in it. That's what sin is. A little sin, it's not that big a deal. It can kill. It will destroy. It will become infected. It will spread. Because that's what sin does. But when we run from sin, we're saying that we believe God's judgment of ourselves and that we are to live a different way. And by turning from sin and resisting temptation, we are showing God is greater than our sin. And God receives glory when we resist. Think about Joseph. Joseph, rather than engage in, in, in all kinds of sexual immorality, he ran off and his story is remembered. God received glory. 
When we turn from sin, God receives glory. Now, a fourth thing that we can do involves us refusing to compromise. See, one of the ways we condemn God's glory is when we try to make sin not sound so bad. If we tolerate sin in our lives, I mean, we cannot tolerate sin, and we must refuse to compromise with the world. When we resolve to follow Christ, no matter what this world or the devil throws at us, God receives glory. It reminds me of the story of Vibia Perpetua. Anyone ever heard that story? It's in the 200s. Vibia Perpetua, who is a convert to Christianity, and another woman named Felicitas, and a few others, but they were young women. Uh, Vibia Perpetua was a, a mother uh, of an infant, and her friend Felicitas was pregnant when she was arrested, ended up giving birth while in custody. But both of them were sentenced to death because they refused to offer incense and just say this, Caesar's Lord. I mean, can you imagine? Here's the temptation. All you have to do, Vibia, is just take a little incense, sprinkle it on the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. No big deal. Matter of fact, your God will forgive you later. Now, let me tell you, baby, if you don't do this, quite possibly you could be killed, your child could be killed, and your parents could be killed. What do you do? She, her father, matter of fact, when she was sentenced to death, he came and he begged her. He says, this is not how I raised you. This is not how I taught you. Please, just offer a little instance. It's not that big a deal. And he goes, well, if not for me, what about your, your child, your baby? Who's going to take care of the child? And she goes, no. She goes, I love my child, but I love Jesus more. And so she refused to wear the, the pagan garb of those who were sentenced to death. So she was stripped naked and taken out into the Colosseum to be killed. And, but the crowd, even the bloodthirsty crowd, couldn't contain it because they could see that her and Felicitas had both, I mean, even Felicitas had just given birth. And so they demand they be clothed, and then they were clothed, they were trampled by a mad cow, and yet she still didn't die. Then the, the centurions went back and forth stabbing, or gladiators stabbing them, and she still didn't die. And then they took, she grabbed the blade and she had it put to her neck, and then he executed her. Only reason we remember her story now because of the fact that she refused to deny Jesus. Jesus was greater than anything else in her life. And so God is glorified because of that. Now, some people might think that heartbreaking, but God will take care. When we honor him, he'll take care of those other things in our lives that are very important, that hurt. But sometimes God allows us to go into those situations to bring his name great glory. For refusing to compromise. Also, when we are relying on his promises, we bring glory to God. People see the manifest display who God is in us. They see Christ in us. When we rely on his promises, I love the book of Numbers chapter 14. And Moses said to the Lord, because if you remember, the, you may not be familiar with the story, but God is so frustrated with the nation of Israel that he says, Moses, stand away from them. I'm going to destroy them all, and then I'm going to start over with you and make a whole nation out of you. And Moses responds by repeating back to God his promises. In Numbers 14, Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud, your glory, stands over them, and you go before them, and a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame, again, God's glory, it's a synonym for it, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, Lord. 
saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt till now. See, when you cling to God's promise, God promises never to leave you nor forsake you. God promises to forgive you when you come to Him in repentance and faith. God promises never to cast us out, that He will be there for us in the midst of trials and struggles and temptations. And when we rely on God's promises and believe in His Word, God receives great glory because of that. Relying on His promises. Also, Another way of participating in God's glory or glorifying Him involves repenting of sin. Holding on to sin does nothing except hasten and increase God's judgment and your exposure and your shame. It does nothing for you. But when we repent of our sin, it's our admission that we are wrong and God is right, which vindicates Him and shows that He is true. Remember, God's word says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, then we're calling God a liar. And his word is not in us. But if we admit our sin, if we confess it to him and are genuinely repentant, we are authenticating God's testimony about us and he receives glory because of it. And the next thing we need to do is resolve to find our satisfaction in him. Resolve to find our satisfaction in Him. We don't, find, we don't really understand this concept of finding our satisfaction in God. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper tweaked that and changed that slightly and said that our chief end is we bring glory to God by enjoying Him forever. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we find our satisfaction in God, when we fill ourselves up with God, God receives glory because people look at us and they say, wow, what is different about them? What is different about them? Because I'm filled up with God. I'm not walking around going all the time going, I hate my life, I'm such a sinner. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, we understand that, but we don't become uh, just this sadist that just are always putting down ourselves or, or wanting to be inflicted with pain. Instead, we want to find joy in God. Do you find your joy in God? I mean, what do you find joy in? You might find joy in a lot of things, but when you think of God, you don't find our joy in God. But do you know God commands us to find our joy in Him? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. You know, God commands us to, pray, uh, to praise Him. Did you know that? C.S. Lewis, when he first read the Psalms, was really bothered by them. Because he felt that he, God was constantly saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. He said it felt like a vain woman searching for compliments. But he said, God, he realized something, that it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to us. That's, by the way, why worship is so serious. See, God wants us to worship because he wants to give us himself. So when he commands us to worship, he's saying, praise me, I want to give you me. I want to give you myself. I want to show you my greatness and love. And I want to just envelop you in my glory. And that you might enjoy me and I, as I enjoy you. Find your satisfaction in me. Where is your satisfaction? And I'll tell you right now, your sin will only satisfy for a moment. But it will leave you thirsty and sick. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. And then lastly... We need to reflect back to him what he means to us. 
reflect back to him what he means to us. See, by being obedient, by enjoying him for who he is, we are free to pursue our lives in him. We do not have to work before God to be accepted. We don't have to do religion. We are free to enjoy him, pursue him, to find our joy in him. God created us to be mirrors, to show by our lives who we believe he is by enjoying him through our delight and obedience. And one day we shall see him as he is, and that will be glorious. C.S. Lewis summed it up this way. To be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond our merits. And it is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible, or a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And in the face, in, in the end, that face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible, God inviting us to participate and share in His glory, not a glory of our own that we pursue. God will not share that or give glory to another, but find our glory in God or enjoyment in God, enjoying the display of who He is in our lives and in the world. He will confer that glory and fame upon us, inexpressible, or He will be inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. See, we shall enter into God's glory, and he will share his glory, not in the sense of us achieving a competing glory, but it will be bestowed to us. And then the words of Habakkuk will be true in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Are we living for God's glory or our own? See, the Puritans... Not the Puritans, but during the time of the Reformation, they understood that there was a competing glory, and they wanted to make sure that everything went back to his, the praise of his name. That is God's motivation. Are we living for God's glory or our own? So that we will be known or so that he will? Are we ready to preach Christ and then die and be forgotten? All of the things that we do will be forgotten. It is only the knowledge of who Christ is what is going to endure. Let us die so that his glory might be made known. Joy might be shared and others will know who Jesus is for his glory and our joy. Now as I conclude this message, I did this at camp and I, I'd like to do this now. Uh, I want to pray for the glory of God just as Habakkuk said in 2.14 that it will be made known throughout the world. And I'm going to invite you just to pray along with me uh, that glories, God's glory might be displayed throughout the earth as we seek to make his name known throughout all of creation. To hit for the praise and honor of his name and that our joy in him might increase. So just pray with me for a moment as we conclude the message time. Well, Lord, our God, we come into your presence by the matchless name and mighty works of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Lord, you have said within your word that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that you've commanded unto us even in, and that you will be with us even to the end of the age. And Lord, we look for that promise, that time where the kingdom of God will be manifest in all of its glory and that the knowledge of the glory of God will be manifest all over the earth. And Lord, we long for that day. We know that there are so many that are living lives of oppression and lives of darkness that are just lost in sin. Lord, whether it's in the world or in our neighborhood or just in our, our own selves. 
Lord, convict us of our sins and bring us back close to you that we might reflect back to you what you mean to us. Help us find our enjoyment in you and help us not to, to exchange the glory of God for the suicidal nature of sin as we try to drink from the dirty water of this world. But Lord, may your glory be made known not just through here, throughout Sugar Grove and Yorkville and Pawpaw and all the different cities and areas in the Fox Valley area or all around in Illinois. But Lord, let it radiate throughout the world. Give us a vision for the world. Lord, let your glory be made known in Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and Guatemala, and Nicaragua, and El Salvador, and Honduras, and Costa Rica, and Belize, and Panama, and Haiti, and Dominica, and Dominican Republic, and Trinidad, and Tobago, Grenada, and Antigua, and Barbuda, Barbados, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, St. Kitts, and Nevis. Lord, may it be made known in Bahamas, or Jamaica, or Cuba, or throughout South America, in Guyana, or Suriname, or Colombia, or Venezuela, or Peru, or Bolivia, or Bolivia. Lord, may it be made known in Chile, in Argentina, or Paraguay, or Uruguay. Lord, may it be made known throughout Argentina and Brazil, or throughout Europe, in those small countries that we ever, never even know about, in Andorra, and Monaco, and San Marino, and the Vatican, and Italy, and Malta, Cyprus, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands, UK, Iceland, Ireland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, Macedonia, Greece, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo, Serbia, Montenegro, Croatia, Slovakia, Slovenia, Portugal, Spain, France, Germany, Czech Republic, Poland, Switzerland, Austria, Hungary, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Maldives, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Burma, Bangladesh, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. Lord, let it be made known throughout China, Mongolia, North Korea, South Korea. Lord, may it be made known throughout the, the Philippines, throughout Indonesia, Malaysia, Taiwan, Singapore. Lord, may it be made known throughout Brunei or East Timor. Lord, may it be your glory made known throughout Oceania and Papua New Guinea or Palau or Nauru, Tuvalu, Vanuatu, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, Kiribati, Micronesia, Marshall Islands, Solomon Islands, New Zealand, Australia, Comoros, Seychelles, Marcius, Madagascar, Cape Verde, Seatome and Principe, Equatorial Guinea, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Egypt, Sudan, South Sudan, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Mauritania, Mali, Senegal, the Gambia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, Lord Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, Central African Republic, the Republic of Congo, Lord, and, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, Gabon, Cameroon, Angolia, Angola, Namibia, South Africa, Lesotho, Swaziland, Mozambique, Malawi, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, Lord, may it be made known through Djibouti, may it be made known through Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. Lord, if there's any nation, we pray that it might be made known throughout the entire world. Give us a vision that we are overcome by to make your glory manifest throughout all the world. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen.